0: Father, as we come to this uh, account that you give us here, a literal account of the fall of Adam and Eve, Lord, I just ask today that uh, you help us to uh, observe just how Satan deceived Eve, Lord, the way he deceived Eve is the same way that he deceives us in every uh, area that we sin in, so we can learn a lot of lessons by observing her fall, Lord. We don't want to fall, we do fall at times, Lord, but... Uh, the The great news is that that uh, Lord, uh, after that fall you 've set out to to redeem us all through Jesus Christ and his blood and lord we 're so grateful for that and that 's really I think the main lesson of what we learned today is just how we 're all susceptible to falling and Lord, if it wasn 't for your grace, we would never get back up but lord you 're so full of grace and you 're so full of mercy that uh, those who believe in you, no matter. How hard the fall is, Lord, uh, we're gonna, you're going to get us back up, and we just thank you for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, and uh, Lord, for your plan of restoration for this creation and, and for our lives, and we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen. You could divide the Bible into three main themes if you wanted to, and you would not be amiss if you did that. The first theme you could call the creation. Uh, that's, uh, that's a main theme of the Bible. Uh, the second theme you could call the fall, the fall of mankind, the fall of Adam and Eve. The third theme of the Bible is the redemption of mankind. Now, if you stop and think about it, the creation is covered almost exclusively in the first two chapters of the Bible. The fall is covered in just one chapter, chapter three of Genesis in the Bible. And then the other 1186 chapters of the Bible are pretty much all about the redemption story. Now, why so much time and effort or why so much coverage on the redemption uh, and so little on the creation and the fall? And let me answer that question with a little illustration. Let's imagine this great potter uh, who's made his greatest masterpiece and it's fallen and, and it's, it's hit the floor and it's fallen into hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of pieces. Well, that potter uh, has a couple of choices. He can pick up all of those pieces, and he can try to put all of those pieces back together again, but it's going to take him a lot of effort and a long, long time. His other choice, which to me seems like the logical choice, the easiest choice, especially seeing he's a master potter, is just to start all over again. And so it would seem to me that when Adam and Eve fell, it would have been easier for God to just have started all over again. But see, that wasn't an option. That wasn't an option because eventually the next person that he created would have done the exact same thing, given the time he would have done the same thing. So God had only two options. One option was just to give up on men. I mean, you you almost hear his heart uh, along those lines when you get to the flood and and he talks about the, wicked and the wickedness of man, and he says, you know, I, I wish that I didn't even make men and women. That's how bad they had gotten. And that was one option. The other option was to pick up the pieces and put us back together again and thank the Lord that that's the option that he chose. That's the plan that he laid before the foundation of the world and he laid that plan because he loves us so much. Now, what we want to do today is look at this second main theme of the Bible. And that is the fall. And we're going to begin by setting the scene. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were discussing the Garden of Eden, and we were trying to figure out the location of the Garden of Eden, and we figured out that it was somewhere on the outskirts of earth and on the outskirts of heaven, almost as if it was some, some kind of bridge between heaven and earth. And, we, and our best evidence for that is found over in Ezekiel 28, and that's why I ask you to turn to Ezekiel 28. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. And look down at verse number eleven. And we've went over this before, but we're going to go over it again, just to just to set the setting here. All right. Now he says in verse number eleven, he says, "Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me." Now, what this is, it's a lamentation against the king of Tyre. But king, the king of Tyre is a type of Satan. You can't help to see that as we read these verses. So we're really looking at this in its application to Satan. Listen to what he says. "Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying." Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now you can see that this is Satan he's talking about now. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. So this isn't the king of Tyre here. Who is this? This is Satan. He was in the garden of Eden from the beginning of creation. The garden of God. Now jump down to verse number 14. He says, You were the anointed cherub who covers everything. In other words, you were over everything. I established you and you were on the, he was in Eden, but he was also, Eden was the holy mountain of God. And so he was on the holy mountain of God. So here you've got Satan. I mean, he's the anointed angel over all. And and uh, before he Rebelled against God. Look at how God describes him. He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom. I mean, perfect in beauty. I mean, you were the, Satan was the greatest living being in heaven outside of God. I mean, you talk about an archangel. He was the archangel of archangels. And then one day, here's what happened. God told the angels, he says, I'm going to create a new universe beyond heaven. And, uh, and, uh, and he told them that your task now as angels will be to minister to my crown jewels of that creation, and that would be Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's descendants. And so we're told in Job 38 that on the sixth day of creation, when God had created ...everything, and he had created man and woman, we're told that the angels all shouted with joy. I mean, they were so excited about what God had done. Most of them were. I believe Satan shouted with joy, too. But deep down in his heart, he didn't have any joy. I mean, he was angry with God, I have no doubt about that... ...which made him bitter against God, and there was no joy or peace in his heart... And the reason for all of that is that he was full of pride. I mean, he was full of pride because here he was. I mean, he was the archangel over archangels and archangel over all beings in heaven except for God. And and so he had lifted himself up in pride. And now God tells him, I'm going to create someone even greater than you. And Satan is angry about that. Look at, look at about his Read about his pride. Go back a few books over to, Isaiah, just a couple of books back and go over to Isaiah and look at chapter number 14, Isaiah chapter number 14. And then go to verse number 13 and listen to what is said here about Satan. It says in in verse number 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And yet we know the truth. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol, to the grave, and to the lowest depths of the pit all the way to hell. That's, that's your ultimate destination, Satan, is what we're told here. But here is Satan I mean, he, he, here he is. He's dreaming about how one day he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to be above God. He's going to be greater than God. He's going to be ruling heaven. And not only does God shoot that vision down now with this new creation of Adam and Eve, he tells him that you're going to be servants to the man and to the woman that, that uh, they're going to be greater than the angels and that your, you and your fellow servants will be have the task of serving mankind. Now, from that moment on, when Satan's told about this creation, I begin, believe that he began to plot how he could destroy Adam and Eve and how he could destroy mankind. And it didn't take him long to get his chance. It didn't take him long at all. Because you remember in chapter 2, what did God do? He created Adam on the earth, from the dust of the earth, and then where did he place him? He placed him in Eden, and Satan was already there. And then he created Eve from the side of Adam, and then where did he place her? He placed her in the Garden of Eden. And so Satan is licking his chops. He's thinking, I'm go- how can-, he's thinking from the very beginning, how am I going to destroy Adam and Eve? And what does God do He just places them right there in his midst. And no doubt a similar scene took place in heaven that takes place when you get to the book of Job in the first chapter of Job. And so what I've done, I've changed the names a little bit, and I'm just going to read you from the book of Job, but we're going to apply it to Adam and Eve. So so listen to to the story as it would be told like it was told in, in the book of Job. He says, on, on the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came with them. And the conversation probably went something like this. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servants Adam and Eve? Look at how they're serving me and living blamelessly and upright before me and how they fear me and will not eat of the tree of knowledge, of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they love me. And so Satan answers the Lord and he says that's because the reason they're doing that Lord isn't because they love you. The reason they're they're not eating of that tree is because you've put a hedge around them and you've given them a perfect life and in a perfect environment and you have blessed the work of their hands and their possessions have increased greatly in the land but now let me have a little bit of time with them and I will assure you then I can get them to eat of the forbidden fruit. And uh, uh, just, just test me on this. And you'll see, Lord, just how little they really care about you. So the Lord said the same thing he said to Satan when he allowed him to go after Job. He says, you have my permission to test them. And so Satan went out from the presence of God and he went straight back to the Garden of Eden. Now, Here's my question. If God is omniscient, if he knows all things, if he knows the future, and he knew that Satan, he knows the mind of Satan, he's always known the mind of Satan, and if he knew that Satan was going to set out to destroy the human race, then why did he allow Adam and Eve to be in harm's way? Why allow it? Well, the reason he allowed it is because he created Adam and Eve as free moral agents. And he gave them the freedom to either love him by trusting and obeying him or hate him by disobeying him. And he narrowed it down to one thing. He narrowed it down to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only thing they could do to sin. And at this point, they didn't have a sin nature. So they had no propensity to sin. And I don't know if they ever would have eaten of that fruit. I mean, God had told them, hey, you can eat of all the fruit and and all the land, especially in the Garden of Eden. You can eat all of it. You can eat freely of it all you want. Just don't eat of this tree. Because if you eat of this tree, surely you're going to die. It's going to kill you. So don't eat of this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think, hey, you know, they were smart enough to say, man, let's stay away from that fruit. And I don't think they ever, they didn't have a fallen nature, so I don't think they ever would have eaten it from that fruit if they hadn't have been tempted from the outside. But that temptation that God's allowed Satan to bring against Adam and Eve is what really tested their love, what really tested their sincerity, what really tested their faith. And God knew from the very beginning that they were going to fail. Because deep inside, God knew that Adam and Eve loved the stuff, but they really didn't love him. You know, that's the same test we all face every day. I mean, it's real easy when everything's going our way to love God, to love all that he gives us. But when things get really difficult, I mean, do we trust him then? Do we really believe him then? Do we really love him then? And, and God knew that they were going to fail because he knew they really didn't, didn't love him. But, but he let them fail anyway. Now, here's another question i got to ask. Why did he let them fail so soon? I mean, I mean, I don't think they were in the garden more than a few years, probably no more than a few weeks, maybe no more than, more, more than a few months, but I don't think it went past a few months. They weren't in there long before they fell. I mean, why not give them just a few I mean, God, a day is, is a thousand years. Give them a thousand years in the garden before you let them fail. I mean, why let it happen so quick? Well, God could have waited a thousand years, but it was going to happen anyway. I mean, surely you think, man, after a thousand years, Adam and Eve would have just fallen, and living in this perfect environment, in this perfect utopian society, they would have just fallen in love with God. But you go over and you remember when we were in the book of Revelation and we were looking at the millennium. Remember in the millennium how Satan is put on a chain during the millennium? And and he's on a chain for a thousand years and everybody lives with peace and joy and this perfect society and this utopian society. And then at the end of a thousand years, Satan is released. And when he's released, he deceives all of the nations. He deceives them into thinking that God hasn't treated them fairly, that God hasn't done them right, that, that they they better than, than, than the way God's been treating them. And all of the nations come against Christ and you and me, the saints, to kill us. And God ends that right away. But even after a thousand years, see, so he could have waited a thousand years and the result would have been the same. And God wanted to get about the business. He knew it was going to be a long, long work anyway. And he wanted to get about the business of redeeming mankind and so he let them fall I mean right away. But he had a plan. He had a plan. He had a plan that he laid before the foundation of the world. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says we have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained he was foreordained to come to this earth and die before the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve were even created, he was, he was foreordained. But he's been manifesting these last times, Peter says, for you, for the church, for those of us who love God, who choose to love God. But before that plan could be implemented, that fall that inevitably would have come anyway had to come And now we see it come as we go back to Genesis at chapter number 3. And we look at a few verses there beginning in chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. Let me read to you. We'll begin reading in verse number one. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field which the Lord had made. Let me tell you why he was more cunning. This serpent was more cunning because Satan had entered this serpent, this particular serpent. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, I mean, can you believe it? I can't believe it. Has God indeed said to you, you shall not eat of the, every tree of the garden? I mean who's the serpent? you guess who the serpent is well we're told in revelation chapter twelve verse nine that old serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world that's who the serpent was and it's interesting here that the word the Hebrew word for serpent literally means a shining, upright creature, this shining upright creature, this attractive creature that that fits exactly with how Paul describes Satan over in, uh 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, he says Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And that's exactly what he did to Eve. Here's Eve living in the garden. I mean, looking around at the garden, and all of a sudden comes this shiny beast shining with this glowing light. She said, man, he's got to be something special. And so he begins to talk to her. Now, Satan's in classic form here. I mean, what we see in chapter 3 is exactly the way he approaches all of us every single day. And so there's a lot of lessons to be learned right here. And so the first thing he does, now notice what he does. He catches her alone. I mean, that's his first strategy. He sees her by herself, and so he enters the body of this serpent, and he approaches her as this attractive, glowing being. Now, Satan always comes at us as some type, something or someone who's very alluring. I mean, it's like a lure. You fish with a lure. He has a lure that he comes at you with, something very attractive to get you to fall. And he loves to get you alone, because if he can get you alone, he's really, he, 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 it's real easy to get you fall, to fall, especially if you're alone and you're lonely. There's a little bit of difference there. Because I can be alone and not be lonely at all. You know, I like to be alone. I love to get in my closet and be alone with God. Because, man, when I'm with God, I'm not alone at all. I love to get off with me and Brenda and just be alone somewhere. Well, when I'm with Brenda, I'm not alone. But if you're by yourself, and I see this happen to Christians all the time, who isolate themselves from friends and family and they get mad at God, they're angry with God, they're bitter with God, and they isolate themselves from God. Let me t- warn you, when you do that, Satan is going to attack you. He's coming at you. He sees you, and he sees you, and his demons see you in that position, and they're going to come at you. So don't get be alone. I mean, being alone with God is the greatest thing you can do. But don't be alone. don't be lonely alone. And here was, here was Eve. I don't know that that uh, she was lonely, but I don't believe she was in a strong relationship with God at this point or she wouldn't have done, I mean, even though they walked and talked with God. I mean he actually walked in the garden with them. She still didn't love God, she still wasn't in a relationship with God, and so she was really, you could say she was lonely, and so Satan sees that, and that's when he comes. And attacks her. Now, his next strategy, and he loves this strategy. And he uses it on me all the time. I don't know if he uses it on you. His next strategy is to plant seeds of doubt about God's word and about God's goodness. Listen to what he says. He says, I mean, did God really say you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? That sounds unfairly strict to me. I mean... He doesn't want you to really enjoy life, it sounds like to me. And so what he does, he's getting Eve to focus on the restrictions instead of all the freedom that she's been given. She's been given the free freedom to eat of every tree on earth, to eat of all the fruit on earth, to enjoy the earth to, 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 to its fullest, to enjoy God to, its, to his fullest. I mean, but, 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 but what Satan wants her to do is to to focus on the restrictions and doubt the goodness of God. And when God can, when Satan can get us to doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness, he set us up for a fall because he's breached our armor of faith. And really, let me tell you what, doubting God's word and doubting his goodness are the same thing. If you doubt the word of God, you're doubting God's goodness. If you doubt the goodness of God, you're doubting God's Word because His Word is all about His goodness. That's what the Word of God is about. It's about how good God is. It's not about the restrictions. I I hate religions where they make the Word of God about the restrictions. It's not about the restrictions. It's about the freedom we have in Christ. Christ said it like this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It doesn't put you under law. Christ is the end of law the law for righteousness to those who believe. And so it's all about his goodness. And when we doubt his goodness, let me warn you, when you doubt his word, you are going to fall. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't doubt the goodness of God when God's being good to me in my mind. But when God does something to me that I don't like, I begin to doubt his goodness. And when I d- begin to doubt his goodness, I'm doubting his word. And, 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 and I'm setting myself up for a fall. And I fall, I don't want to say, well, probably ought to say often. And every time I doubt the goodness of God, I fall. I fall. Satan's got me and I fall. Thank goodness the Proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times, as many times as he as he. As he can, or as many times as, as God allows him to fall, but the Lord always lifts him up. The Lord always lifts him up. But fallen isn't fun. Fallen is painful. It brings on depression and despondency and, and it cripples our service to God. I mean, it's really hard to get in here and study this word and serve God and, 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 and prepare if I'm in a fallen, despondent state. And that's where Satan wants to get you and your family. He wants to get you and your job so that he can make you impotent as far as your witness goes. And so let me tell you how to stop that pattern of falling if you're falling. And I need you to hear this myself. It's Romans eight twenty eight. That's the most overused verse in the world. But there's a reason for that. God works together for good all things, all things for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, if we learn to really draw a line in the sand and say, I believe that, that no matter what comes my way, God has allowed that in my life and God is good. And so this is good for me. If we really draw a line in the sand and say that, then we will stop that pattern of falling. But as long as we're not going to believe God's word and we're going to doubt God, we're going to continue to fall and Satan's going to have a heyday with us all our life until we finally set it in stone that sure enough, all things that God does, he does for our good. Now, listen to Eve's response in verse 2 and 3. It says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She kind of corrects Satan here. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, on the surface, that sounds okay. It sounds like Eve is doing the right thing. She's saying, hey, no, I believe what God said here. I think you're wrong, Satan. But there's something troubling in her statement here. And, And you can see that Satan's... She's got chinks in her armor here, and Satan's gotten to her. Because look at the the subtle changes that Eve has made. Eve says, look, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. You see how she's changed God's word? God said in chapter 2, verse 16, he said that you may eat of every tree. Of every tree you may eat freely eat. There's a big, big difference between eat of and freely eat. I mean, what she has done, she's taken away from God's word, and she's made it more restrictive than it really was. And then look at what Eve does. She adds to God's word. She says, and God said that they shall not touch the forbidden fruit. God never said that. God never said that they couldn't touch the fruit. He told them they couldn't eat of the fruit. If you eat of the fruit, it's poison to you. It's going to kill you. Don't eat of it. You can look at it all you want. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can do everything. You can pick it and throw it baseballs with it or whatever you want to do, but don't eat it. That's, God gave them all this freedom, but he said this thing is going to kill you and destroy you. I don't want you to eat it. He never gave them the restrictions that she put on, on you know, attributed to God. So what... Satan has done here, and he does this all the time, he has deceived Eve into making her focus on the restrictions, more on the restrictions than on the freedoms and on the blessings that God has given her. People do that all the time. That's exactly what the cults do. By adding or subtracting from God's Word, they make God more restrictive than He really is. Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath? I mean, they took the Sabbath... And they made it a set of rules. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said very clearly that the Sabbath was made for men. Men were not made for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was a day of of enjoyment. It was a day of rest. It was a day when you got along with God and you fellowship with the Lord and you honored the Lord and you honored your family and you had a great time. I mean, you see some Jews over in Israel and you see them celebrating the Sabbath and, man, you hear this, they got a band and a party and, and, and they're drinking, and they're carrying on, and they're having a great time. They got it right. Now, some of you disagree with the drinking part, but, I, you know, I don't think they're getting drunk, but they're, but they're having a great time on the Sabbath. There were other Jews who took that Sabbath, and they made it a day where, man, you locked yourself in a room, and you didn't do anything. If you washed a dish, you were working. If you helped some pick somebody up off the ground who had fallen, you were working. Anything you did was work. And so they had made it more restrictive. And that's exactly what many denominations, uh, legalistic denominations, do with the word of God. They make it more restrictive than it is. Every restriction that God gives us, is why does he give it to us? For our good, to bless us. I mean, that's what the restrictions are there for. And the Bible isn't a book about restrictions. It's a book about the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. But you see these denominations. You have these denominations, for example, that say, you know, women can't wear makeup. And the way they get that, they get that over in 1 Peter chapter 3, where it says a woman should adore herself uh, on the inside more than she adores herself adorns herself on the outside. But you see what they've done. You know, I, I, I love, one of the things I love about my wife is who she is on the inside, her, she, she, her integrity. She, she, to me, my wife is we have got to be careful here. She's, she's as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. But I'm glad she wears makeup. Not, not that she needs it. But there's nothing wrong with women wearing makeup. There's nothing wrong with women wearing pants. There's nothing wrong with women cutting their hair. Man, these denominations, they get up on these restrictions and they, make, they blaspheme God. See, that's what Moses did when he struck the rock. He attributed anger to God that God didn't have. God pitied those people, and Moses struck the rock because he was fed up with them, and and, and rightfully so. But we better be real careful about not adding or taking away from the word of God, and in doing so, we blaspheme the Lord. Now, look at Satan's next strategy. Go to verse number 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now, there's nothing subtle about this approach, is there? What is he doing here? He is calling God out and out, calling God a liar. Now, nobody does that today, do they? Huh. There's a world full of religion that does that every every time they open their doors. I mean... Uh, you twist this word in any form or fashion, you are calling God a liar. This is God's literal word to you and I. And when we twist this word and we take away from this word and we add to this word, what does the book of Revelation tell you about that? It tells you you better not be adding to this or you will suffer the judgments that are mentioned in this book. So you don't add or take away from the word of God. And any religion that does that is calling God A liar. He says, you will not surely not die. God's not going to kill you for eating a little bit of fruit. I mean, God's not going to do that. God's God's not like that. He's not going to do that. I don't know why He told you that. See, that is the same lie that has sent billions and billions of people to hell over the centuries. But in other words, this lie that there's no such thing as hell. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. And besides that, if you've done more good than you've done bad, you're a pretty good person, and God wants you in heaven. That is a lie, and it blasphemes the Word of God. It adds and subtracts from the Word of God. I was reading a poll the other day where 80% of Americans call themselves Christians. That's laughable. 80% of Americans call themselves Christians, and 80% of those uh, believe that there's religions other than Christianity that lead to heaven. That is a lie. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. That's the only way you can come to heaven. And so, so that lie is coming from where? It's coming from Satan. People are being deceived by Satan, and they're out and out calling God a liar. And I, don't, I wouldn't want to be on the, in their shoes on, the, on, on Judgment Day. Now, he uses another tactic in verse number five. He actually uses the truth. He says, for God knows, in verse number five, that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That, that, Satan uses half-truths in order to deceive us, too, and that's what he does here with Eve. It is It was true that if she ate of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, that she would know good from evil. But look at the lie. Look at how great this lie is. I mean, I mean it, it, Satan t- says to her, hey, you will be like God. She already was like God. She had been created in the image of God. And let me tell you this, it, He puts uh, the way he puts this, it's almost as if this is a blessing, knowing the difference between good and evil. Look, knowing the difference between good and evil is the greatest of curses. I can't wait to the day when I'm in heaven and the only thoughts that I have are good thoughts. I can't wait when the only thing that I can do is good things. I can't do anything evil. I won't be capable of doing anything evil. I won't be capable capable of thinking anything evil. I can't wait for that day. And it's a curse for us because every single day, every moment of every single day, we have a choice. We have a choice to obey God and do good, or we have a choice to disobey God and do evil. And that choice is constantly before us, and it's a constant battle that we have to fight all the time. And every time we disobey God, we sin. And what's the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. And so we die when we do that. And it's a battle. I'll be glad one day when that battle is over. Now, Then we come to, I think, maybe the saddest verse in the Bible. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse number six, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You know what she did at that moment? She rejected God, and bowed her knee to Satan. That's what she did. And people have been doing that ever since. But even sadder, look at the last part of this verse. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. You know, the road to sin never changes. Doesn't change. It's the same as it's always been. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. He says to, to, to the church, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. Listen to this. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. You see how that fit exactly? The description of how Eve fell. I mean, the tree was good for food. Lust of what? The flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. It would make one wise, so wise they didn't need God anymore. The pride of life. That's the same temptation that Satan threw at Eve that was thrown at Jesus in the wilderness, and we don't have time to exegete that today. You can go read Matthew chapter 4, and you'll see it's exactly the same way he came at him, and it's the exact same way he comes at you and me all the time. And after all God had done for them, all he was going to do for them, this beautiful creation, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband, and he ate. And you know what's really bad here? Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. Adam had been told directly by God Himself that you shall not eat of this forbidden fruit. And yet, in re- out and out rebellion to God, He loved Eve more than He loved God. And He took the fruit and He ate the fruit. Now y'all want to know what the fruit was? Non submission. No. Y'all want to know what the fruit was? It doesn't matter what the fruit was. Some people say the fruit's an apple. You see that all the time. It's depicted as an apple. Some people believe it, a lot of pastors, I've heard preach sermons on this, that it was sexual sin or that it was alcohol, it was drugs, it was something like that. It doesn't matter what the fruit was. It doesn't matter at all. The problem wasn't the fruit. The problem was the rebellion and sin in their heart. Let me give you an illustration here. When we lived in Las Vegas, and Eli and Nathan were, I still use them for illustrations. I see them looking at me like, don't do that. (laughs) When they were little bitty toddlers, we we didn't have much stuff back then, but we had had some nice stuff that my parents had given, Brenda's parents had given us, and people had given, you know, for Christmas presents and stuff. We had some nice stuff, and we didn't want them tearing it up but we also wanted to teach them what no meant and, and that they had to learn that they couldn't just go in somewhere and just play with things that weren't theirs. And so we had this little ashtray, and we, never, we didn't smoke, and we didn't let people smoke in our houses, but somebody had given that to Brenda. She worked at the Flamingo Hilton, and somebody had given her that for a Christmas present. And so so uh, we said, you know what we'll do? We'll put the ashtray on the coffee table. The coffee table was real low to the ground. And that was the forbidden ashtray. I could care less if they broke that ashtray. But that ashtray was forbidden. And they would go to that table, and they would reach out to get that ashtray, and I'd grab their hand, and I'd pop it. I'd say, no. And, oh, they'd just look at that ashtray. And there came a day, I mean, I can remember, they had toys everywhere, and both of them standing at the table just looking at that ashtray. (laughs) They would have that ashtray more than anything else in the world. But they couldn't have that ashtray. See, it didn't matter what I put there. I was teaching them a lesson, and that's what God was doing here. So the fruit, don't, don't ever make an issue of the fruit. It really doesn't matter what the fruit was. What mattered was that they disobeyed God, and they rebelled, and they fell. And the whole creation, this grand creation that was very good, I mean, when God says very good, I'm telling you it was very good, was broken into a billion pieces. And God's been working ever since to put it back together. And the greatest part of that work came some 2,000 years ago at Calvary when Jesus died on that cross for the sins of Adam and Eve, for the sins of Seth, for the sins of David, for the sins of George, lots of them, for your sins, that was his greatest work. That was the plan that was laid before the foundation of the world. At that point, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall. At that point, Satan was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But where did he land? He's right here on earth. Now, he's had access to earth since it's been created. But now he's here. He knows his time's short. And he's going to come hard at you and me. He's going to come hard at our marriages. He's going to come hard at our work. He's going to come hard at our testimony. He's going to come at us hard all the time. But we know his tactics. And if we choose to believe in Jesus Christ, we've been given, we have Adam and Eve's nature, that nature that knows good and evil. But we've been given the nature of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that perfect nature And along with that perfect nature, we've been given the Holy Spirit. And so we have the power to defeat Satan. We have the power to put away sin. We have the power to have victory in Jesus Christ. And i got really good news for you. Those gates to Eden, to the new Jerusalem, to the heavenly Zion, are now wide open for those who believe in Jesus Christ. All because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let's, let's go to the Lord and thank him, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. Father, we just thank you for all you've done. What a great fall we've all had, Lord. We've all participated in the destruction of your creation. We've all rebelled against you. But, Lord, on that cross, you died for us. You opened the way for us to believe you to believe in you and your word and what you're telling us, Lord, and and to have new life in Jesus Christ. And we just thank you for that. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't experienced that new life and is not born again, Lord, let today be the day of their salvation where they turn and look to you for truly for their, for, for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that grace. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for all that you teach us through your word. And Help us to be strong in this world, a strong witness, and to not be trampled down by Satan, Lord, but to trample over him. That's what you've given the church the power to do. And We just say thank you for that power that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.